So let's turn to maybe the most recognizable passage in the book of Ecclesiastes. I mean, if you've never read the first word in the Bible, you know this from a 60s rock song. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. We know this, this famous passage here but yet I'd never given consideration really to the larger context that surrounds it. And so we have to look at the Bible, and when we look at context, we have to, we have to kind of ignore the chapter divisions because chapter divisions weren't put in until later with editors, you know, in the Hebrew text or the Greek text. So let's just, let's, it, it's going to read as one flowing document, okay? So when we look at this, what is the context of this A time for everything? It's really wedged in, I think, bookended by a similar thought. So let's look at the bookends. Go right before it into chapter 2, verse 24. And we see that the writer has come to a preliminary conclusion about life. Because you know the Ecclesiastes, he's searching for the meaning of life and he's rummaging through all of these experiences he's had in life. And his basic conclusion thus far is everything's meaningless. It's like nihilism almost. Everything's just a waste, absolutely useless, vanity. I think Eugene Peterson in the message translates it smoke and mirrors. Everything's just smoke and mirrors. But he comes in chapter 2, verse 24, and he kind of comes to a preliminary conclusion, and that is nothing is better for a man than he should eat and drink. Some of y'all better say amen at that. And that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This I also saw was from the hand of God. So he's saying in all of our getting and all of our running and all of our experiences, hold on, one thing we can say is for sure, that we can sit down and eat and drink and enjoy what God has given us. And this is a gift of God. It's a gift of God. Now let's go to the other bookend, which is chapter 3, verse 12, after the time for this and a time for that. What profit, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 9, rather. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in his time. And he's put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning to end. I know nothing, I know that nothing rather is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all of his labor. It is the gift of God. Here we come again with this thought. If nothing else, we can sit down, enjoy the fruit, enjoy a hard day's work and enjoy what God has given us through that and consider it the gift of God. And what I also noticed is that the term joy or gladness 
is woven throughout these texts. Notice chapter 2, verse 26. For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good. He gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner, he's got to work and gather, and he doesn't get to enjoy it. But the righteous people get to have some joy in the journey of working and laboring. So I'm just going to preach the most simple-sounding thing you've ever heard, how to live happily for the rest of your days. How many want to live happily for the rest of your days? Okay. Put Dr. Phil and Oprah to the side right now. And let's talk about Bible, how to live happily for the rest of your days. First thing I see here, first key to unlock the door of happiness is to realize that all good and perfect gifts come down from the Father. To realize that God has given us good things to enjoy in life. Can somebody say amen? It it comes from the Lord. And so when we know that, it produces a gratitude in our hearts. No matter if you have little or you have a lot, if you're serving the Lord and you're a wise person, you can sit back and say, God, I thank you for what you've given me. And I'm going to take joy in that and I'm going to be happy about it. Because the first key to unhappiness in life is not to be thankful for anything. It's not to be always want more, 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 not thankful for what you got. I hate the car. I hate these shoes. I hate the dress. I hate my hair. I hate being around people like that. Just, just total negative spirit. Come on, man. God has given us all things to enjoy. James says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. He doesn't have favorites, in other words. He's not, or he doesn't one day bless and the next day he's stingy. One day he's generous, the next God doesn't work like that. God loves to bless his people. I don't know what you've been taught in church growing up, or maybe you have a different tradition that taught that, you know, that wasn't the case. But I'm telling you, as I read the Bible from front to back, I see where God is trying to bless people. He's trying to be good to people, and He's trying to use them to do His purposes on earth. So it's good to be blessed. And we need to recognize that every good and perfect thing comes down from the Father. Have some thankfulness in your heart. So I told the early service, you know, I got up this morning and it was 17 degrees and I am thankful that my pipes didn't freeze. Come on, how many can give me a wave on that? You're thankful pipes didn't freeze. I used my brain and let the faucet drip in my bathroom all night. But nonetheless, I'm going to give God all the praise that I woke up and didn't have to uh, and got to shower before I came to church. And then number two, on top of that, when I turned the hot water on, it was actually hot. So not only did I get running water, I got a hot shower. Not only that, my HVAC was still working. Thank you, Jesus. And I got up in warmth, got to take a hot shower with running water. I've been in countries where I didn't have any of those things. I've been places where I've bathed with a bucket and... Slept with the lizards and bats, literally. Oh, hallelujah. So I've been to, you know, or our grandparents, you know, my mother-in-law carried water from the river every day. Water from the creek, carrying up, 
Heat your, heat your, get your kitchen working and heating that water carried on the back. That's, we're just two generations away from that in my life. Amen? So I'm thankful I didn't have to get out and seven, I'm making too much of this, but I'm just going to stick it to you, right? I'm thankful I didn't have to get up in 17 degree weather and go down with a bucket to the creek and crack some ice and get the water to heat to get things going. I can thank God. Hallelujah. Thank God I have shoes on my feet. Thank God I had a car that runs. Because I've had cars that don't run. <laughs> and I'm thankful that I got to come to church. And I'm thankful that I can worship in freedom in America still yet. That I can show up with a bunch of crazy on fire people for Jesus this morning. And we can worship the Lord. Come on, we better give him some praise and some thanks in here this morning. Come on, how many thankful people do I have in here this morning? Look at somebody next to you and say, I, I, I'm thankful. First key to life, sit down at the dinner table and say, Lord, I thank you. I thank you. God, I thank you. Oh, you're sweet. I get all this. I get 50 years married to the Sukis. Kudos to you guys. I, we, get, we get to enjoy stuff like this, man. And then we get heaven afterwards. Then we get to kingdom after that. First key to happiness, realize that God has given you everything good to enjoy. One atheist said, well, no, I can disprove that. Let's just take, for example, ice cream. Ice cream is good, but ice cream didn't come from God. Men are producing ice cream. And my response would be, you're not thinking deep enough, my friend. Because if we think deeper, God actually did create the cows and the farmer who learned how to milk the cows. And then somebody figured out sugar cane grows somewhere and they can harvest the sugar cane and figured out how to squeeze it and mill it to where we get sugar. And then somebody figured out how to freeze water and get ice, and somebody figured out how to put other ingredients in it and mix it all up and churn it, and it comes out ice cream. Yes, on, on, on the you know, surface level, a person did that, but on a deeper level, theological level, God really is the one to be praised for ice cream. Oh, hallelujah, come on, somebody. I just set you free in your eating habits right there. Hallelujah. Come on, God, we got to think deeper on these things. God give, gave us so many gifts, so many talents, all the ability, all the resources He's placed in our hands. You say, well, what about, I'm having a rough time right now, Hans. Well, I, I, my heart goes out to you. But I, let me just try to get you to see the blessings you already have. The things you've already been given. I mean, I think about my grandfather on my dad's side. He, he grew up one of 13 in a... Uh, in, abject poverty in, uh, in Lebanon, Virginia. And one day he and his brother decided they had had enough and he was 13 years old and he walked out of a holler, he and his brother with a can of tomatoes to share between them. It's all they had. And he would recount in the winters like this waking up and having to dust the snow off his blanket in the morning. Just So he walked out of there with a can of tomatoes. They shared it between them. 
They work with uh, timber people in the woods, worked in coal mines, went to the army, went through the army and had a list of rules he had to memorize, and the, he memorized them immediately. My, my grandfather had a brilliant mind. He memorized them immediately, and the captain looked at him, and or sergeant looked at him and said, what are you doing here, son? He got out and went back to school. He was probably in his 20s, and he went back to elementary school. They brought a special desk in for him. And he sat and he started learning and skipping grades, worked his way all the way to Pikeville College, a Presbyterian college in Pikeville, Kentucky, and they allowed him to sweep the floors and fire the furnaces, and he graduated number one in his class. Went on, became an expert teacher, founded a bank, founded businesses, had eight kids, sent two through medical school. The rest became teachers or business people. All of us are grandkids. It's absolutely amazing what my grandfather accomplished. Poor as Job's turkey, walking out of a holler in southwest Virginia with a can of tomatoes. Thank God for what you have. And God can take whatever you have and turn it into something great in your life. If you'll just have a little bit of gratitude. Come on, somebody. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise. I didn't mean to tell that about my granddad, but it's an awesome thing. And when we see the good that God gives us, it allows us to see the contrast. It allows us to see the evil in the world. And then it gives us the ability to reach out to the bad things in the world and try to make a difference. Acts 10.38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth who went about doing good and healing all those oppressed of the devil. He went out correcting what the devil had wreaked havoc on. He went back to destroy. John said, this is his mission statement, that for the Son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the enemy. So he came literally to reverse the curse, to turn the bad into good, and to do good wherever he went. Hallelujah. Now we've been left with that same anointing on us and the power of the Holy Ghost on us that that was residing in Jesus. And now you and I can go about doing good and reversing the enemy's damage everywhere we go. Hallelujah. So how many want to be happy in here? Come on. Realize God gave you everything that's good and you wake up every morning and you're a pure migraine headache to the enemy. Don't you want to wake up and the kingdom of hell in your area goes, oh my gosh, he's up again. Second thing, I think it's a key to happiness. And I think the Ecclesiastes writer does it here. He recognizes that God's in control of everything. The whole time for this and a time for that. That whole passage, I've always looked at in my life as, well, there's an appropriate time to do things. There's an appropriate time to sow. There's an appropriate time to reap. There's an appropriate time to be born. There's, you know, there's, it's, it's about the appropriateness of life. But as I look at the context... As it's sandwiched between these two bookends, what I actually see is I think he's talking about God's sovereignty. I think he's talking about we don't understand all there is to life, but God has it all under control. So let's look at the bookends. We don't understand everything there is to life. Work and enjoy the fruit of your labor and realize it's a gift that God has given you. God has everything under control. We don't understand everything about life. Let's work and enjoy the fruit of our labor and realize it's a gift of God. 
I really think that's where he's going. Because if you look after this passage in chapter 3, in verse uh, 11, he says, He's made everything beautiful in its time, and He's put eternity in their hearts. And we know that there's nothing better for man than to rejoice and do good. Every man should eat and drink and enjoy the fruit of his good. Why? Because we don't know the end. I have seen, verse 10, the God-given task. But I can't figure out everything about it all. I don't know. And in verse 14 of chapter 3, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear Him. That which is already has been, that which is has already been, that and what it... Come on, help me, Jesus. We're hooked on phonics. Come on. And what is to be has already been, and God requires an account of what is past. In other words, God's already figured it out. He already knows the, the end from the beginning. We're the ones trying to work through this maze of life and figure it out. God already has it under control. God's already seen the end from the beginning. And if you want to be happy in life, figure that out right now. That it isn't all up to you. God's in this thing with you. That even though when we don't understand everything that happens, God's still in control and He still rules the heavens. Psalm 24, 1, The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, and He's given it to the sons of men. Hallelujah. Even though I don't understand why there's suffering in this world and all these problems of theodicy that we see throughout the, uh, the wisdom literature, nonetheless, I know my God is good all the time, and I know He's got it figured out, and He has an expected end that He's bringing you and I to, and I can rejoice along the way even when I can't see, hallelujah, I know He's bringing me to a blessed place. Come on. Somebody look at somebody and say, you should have shouted right there. You should have said something. Come on. So I'm not going to delve deep into this sovereignty issue because we, you know, there's different polar opposite beliefs about it. I'll just tell you straight out what I think. God is in control in an overarching way. There is a providence He has over creation. But He has given us the keys to the shop, so to speak. And He's asked us to take responsibility and to do what we're supposed to do. Let's, t- let's take, for example, prayer. Why do we need to pray? If God has everything figured out and God knows the end from the beginning and He's all-powerful, why do we even need to pray? We could just get up in the morning and say, you know, and go about life. I have prayed that, by the way. But God has, God has given us the opportunity. He's given us the right and privilege. He has worked it out in His providence that we could have prayer as a means to the end. And so when we pray, it is powerful. We step into the arena with God. We step on the battlefield. And we stand between heaven and earth. We stand as intercessors between some people who are lost or who are in trouble and God who has the answers. Or we go in and we fight spiritual battles. God has given us that means. So so what if we were not to pray? This is what I believe. If we didn't pray, I think some things are not going to get done. I think some things are not going to happen. I do think prayer is not just an exercise of futility. It actually is powerful, and God is waiting 
until we act and then he's going to get in motion. Because he set certain contingencies in the earth realm. And that he's made certain things contingent on certain things. Some prophetic words are contingent. And then he's made prayer a contingent. If you will pray. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then, come on, say it with me. If then I will hear from heaven. Hallelujah. Jesus could have said, I died on the cross. You guys go sit in your lazy boy. I'm going to heal everybody. I'm going to cast out every demon. I'm going to save everyone on planet earth. And I'll be back after a while. But he didn't do that. He said, now you go to the ends of the earth. Behold, I give unto you power over all the power of the enemy. Hallelujah. Now you go. I have all authority in heaven and earth. Now you go preach the gospel to all nations as a witness. Then the end's going to come. It's up to you and I. We have a part in this. Even though he's in control, he's given us the keys to the shop. So much for sovereignty. Let's get down to our bit. So when we're working, and when we're praying, and when we're walking, and when we're doing life, I can rest assured that I'm not doing it alone. But I have someone standing behind me, my elder brother, hallelujah, who has all authority in heaven and earth, and I've been given the privilege and the honor and the responsibility of using his name. Because when I use his name, it represents something in the heavens. It represents the work of the cross that's already finished. It represents Satan's defeat and ultimate doom. It represents restoration, sin forgiven, diseases healed. Hallelujah. It represents every bit of that. And now we have the authority and privilege to use that name. Come on, somebody give him praise. Hallelujah. Let me give you, let me give you a few examples here. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, there's one more thing I want to add and just put the icing on this. He says this in chapter 5, verse 18 of Ecclesiastes. This is so super good. Chapter 5, verse 18. Here's what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink. Come on. He's into eating and drinking. And to enjoy the good of all of his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him for it's his heritage. So we're back to the same thinking. But I want you to know this, notice this, verse 19. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. Amen. Then one more. Verse 20. For he will not dwell unduly, or, or I think some translations have, he won't remember. He won't dwell unduly on the days of his life, because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. This is Hans's interpretation of that. God wants to bless you so much. And he wants you to see the gift of this life. And he wants you to slow down and enjoy the now. And if you do that and have this attitude of gratitude, realize he's in control, that you're going to be so happy in life that you're not going to remember all the bad stuff. I'm going to say it to this congregation. You realize God is in this thing? He's in control of this thing? 
and we enjoy the now, we're going to be so happy that we can't... What are you talking about bad times? Some people are always looking for the... You remember back in the 50s? Lord, it was great times. I was carrying water on my back. and <laughs> You better think about all that you had to do in the 50s. No, come on, get in the now, man. Get in the now. No, you, I tell you what, 10 years from now, I'm going to be blessed. I just believe 10 years from now, God's going to work all this out. How about the now? Live in the now. God has blessed you right now. Let's live in the now a little bit. I've been guilty for not living in the now. I'm always thinking about tomorrow. And all, but I've, had, I've tried to settle down a little bit and say, God, I realize you've blessed me so much. And I think having a grandson really amped that up in my life. He's staying with me right now. And so his name is Maverick, right? And so uh, we put up a little Christmas train. We found the attic that still worked. And so we put up this Christmas train, and he calls it Bah. So I come home sometimes late at night, and I'll walk in, and he sees me, and, it, and it, you know, the kids don't say, hi, how was your day? You know, they don't greet you that way. He just says, bah, 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 bah. Get that train rolling, man. And I think, and you know what I do? I get that train rolling, man. I put down everything and go to that train. And then what do I do? I sit down. And I watched that train with him. Pause. Soak it in. Help us to do that. Come on, can you lift your hand and say, help me to do that, Lord, in my life. I've run so hard in my life. Lord, help me to soak it in more and more. Life is so good. Yeah, help me to soak it in more. If you have kids, soak it in right now with your kids. Brian sent me a video of him sleigh riding. With you girls, and you, my man, and I just th- thought, what a great dad! Y'all need to take him out to lunch today. I mean, <laughs> come on, somebody, amen? amen! Hallelujah! Where was I at? Enjoy the now. Enjoy the now. God is doing things. He's even working on our behalf. You know, we can enjoy the now because He's already got it under control. COVID, COVID is no issue for Jesus. I mean, come on, man. The the stock market is no issue for Jesus. Who's in the White House is no issue for Jesus. What's happening between Russia and Ukraine, which is serious, and we need to pray for our friends over there. But you know what? God already knows the outcome from the beginning. And He already has the power to let peace come or whatever needs to happen. God has that power. He's already got it under control. It's not like He's wringing His hands worried, broke, and staying up at night trying to figure out His life. Let me give you three examples, and, and, and we're going to pray, all right? First, first example, once you, once you realize God's in control, that He's given you good stuff, you can slow down and enjoy the now, you, you, it's like you put on a different set of lenses. You put on faith lenses. And now everything that you look at comes through the lenses of faith. And it, cha- it changes everything. It changes everything. Everything. Like my friend recently his wife was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer several years ago. They've been really fighting a battle, and she got a really bad report a few months ago, and I called him, and I said, hey, how's it going? He said, well, Hans, we got a bad report, but Jesus always gives us a good report. I said, dude, I love that. Because if we were faithless, we'd just have to suck in the bad report. 
But I got faith in a God who can heal every bit of that stuff. Numbers 14. In the, in the nation of Israel, they were coming out of Egyptian bondage, and they had a direct, I think it was about a 14-day journey to get to the promised land. It took them 40 years. What was the difference between 14 days and 40 years? Unbelief. They didn't live in faith. So they come to, very early on, they come to Numbers chapter 14, and God says, okay, take one representative of each of the tribes of Israel, send them into the promised land, scope it out, see how it's going to go, have them come back and report. So what happened? Ten of them came back and said, oh my gosh, there are giants in the land. There's no way we can do it. We were like grasshoppers in their sight. I love what Kenneth Copeland said. The problem wasn't the giants. The problem was the grasshoppers. The problem was how they saw themselves. But two of them came back, Joshua and Caleb, and they said this, The land which we pass by is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, then He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Just don't rebel against the Lord. Don't fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. It'd be like lunch to us. That's looking through the eyes of faith. But the rest of the people stood up, grabbed stones, and was ready to stone them because they were the faith, they were the two faith guys in the crowd. Moses and Aaron hit their faces before God. And God was ready to wipe out all of Israel. And Moses and Aaron interceded before the Lord. Okay, why am I saying this? When you have faith, you realize that all things are possible. When you see God's in control, all things are possible. This is not a problem, guys. It's not a problem. We are more than able to take this land. So maybe you've been thinking about something. Maybe you've been praying about something. You've been struggling with faith. I want to just inject some faith in you right now to realize that all things are possible to you. You have a blank check in prayer. Anything you ask in His name, He said He would do it. If not that, go get somebody else who agrees. Because if, any, if you two, any two of you agree is touching anything, it's going to be done. Hallelujah. If you don't believe that, come get the elders of the church. We'll lay hands on somebody and on them with oil in the prayer of faith. They'll save the sick and God will raise them up. Come on, I can, we can just keep going. Come on. You can believe, 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 believe. All th- Come on, say it with me. All things are possible to Him who believes. Next, next thing I want to show you is David's life. David, Psalm chapter 3. When David was, was totally dethroned from his kingdom by his son, Absalom, he had to leave the city. And he left, all, he left his kingdom behind. Come on, the tabernacle, Mount Zion that he had built, left all that behind. And as he's going out, people are greeting him and he knows all the betrayal that's gone down. I mean, of all the things David had been through, I think this was the worst when his own son betrayed him. But yet, the Bible tells us that he wrote Psalm 3 during this period of time. And here's Psalm 3. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying to my soul, there's no deliverance for him and God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. And I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. You know what he's saying? 
I went out with all these troubles and all of these issues going on and I was so confident in my God that I laid down and slept like a baby. And then he says, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves round about. Why? Because I know my God is in control and I know my God can do everything He said He was going to do and I know God's got a destiny on my life and God's going to do it. Come on, give him a hand clap of praise. Somebody shout hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Come on, beat yourself. God's going to do it for me. One more thing. Can y'all handle one more thing? Book of Habakkuk, chapter 3. So if you go to the book of Habakkuk, the prophet is looking. Habakkuk was a prophet. And he's dealing with Judah in one of the most crucial periods of their of their whole existence, that Babylon is at war and coming and marching on on Judah and Jerusalem. In the midst of all that, the prophet stands up in chapter 3 verse 1 and the Bible says this, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shiganoth. And then he prays, O Lord, I've heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And it's this beautiful, (coughs) chapter 3 is this beautiful cry to the Lord. But what's interesting is this little term, Shiganoth. It's only mentioned twice in the Bible, once here and once I think in Psalm 7. And our friend Tommy Bates came a few years and preached on this. He came a few years ago and preached for us. And the way Tommy brought it out, you know, I never really heard. I never really went and followed up what he was saying, but I did this week. So the term Shiganoff evidently is just some sort of some sort of prayer or poetic verse to the Lord. Okay. But if you look at the root word in Hebrew, the root word means frenzied or to be drunk like or to sway. I mean, what in the world? We're talking about prayer. But the root word, and maybe I'm stretching, you know, maybe I'm stretching the etymology here. And if I am, Lord, forgive me, but I'm just trying to understand. To, to sway, to be frenzied, to be drunk-like. Could it be, and this is the way Tommy brought it across, that there are certain prayers that just go beyond the head and they get into the soul. And there's certain prayers that we start rocking. If you ever go to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, the Jews sit there and rock like this and pray. Now part of it is they have their eyes open because they're reading their prayers and it keeps focus. But even if you go back to Cane Ridge Revival in Kentucky, they didn't have any musical instruments, I don't think, but they sing song, sang their prayers. If you go with me into Appalachian Mountains and some of the Baptist churches, they still have this. Oh, God, why don't you come and rescue me? And then the whole church will sing it as a prayer. It's really beautiful. I've been to those meetings. I went to a baptism one time with the old Baptists, in our, and they were, like, they were like that. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And then the whole congregation sing it. Man, it would get all over you. But you know, if you've ever prayed with any old-time Pentecostals, we've heard some of that. Oh God, why don't you move, Lord, in the name of Jesus? 
Come on, hallelujah. God, shake the foundation, Lord. I'm getting beyond my head knowledge and I'm getting down into the spirit of it now, God. Lord, I just pray Him, move right now, Lord. And it's a prayer that goes beyond the head and it gets down into the spirit. Ah, hallelujah. Woo! Maybe this is what, maybe this is what Paul and Silas were doing in prison in Acts chapter 16. Mate, let's just think about it. Oh, God, you see us now. Lord, we're in trouble here. But God, I know that it's nothing for you, Lord. Hallelujah. So right now, I'm just going to praise you in the midst of this battle. And God, I'm going to give you glory and honor. Hallelujah. And then all of a sudden, God hears it in heaven above. And then God starts tapping His foot maybe on the earth. And then an earthquake happens and shakes the foundation of that prison. Hallelujah. And every prison door is open. Every chain falls off. And those people walk out of there completely free. Maybe it's because they tapped into a prayer that went beyond head knowledge. And it got right down into the spirit of things. Come on, somebody shout hallelujah in this church. Come on, give him praise. Honey. Come on, why don't you stand on your feet? Why don't you just cry out, oh Lord? Come on, just let it go. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Lord. Lord, we bless your name. Hallelujah. Come on, make some noise right now. God, you're in control. God, you're in control. Hallelujah. 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 Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Then he ends this chapter and he says this, Though the fig tree may not blossom, and though no fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the land, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. In other words, when everything looks like it's falling all around me, Lord, I'm going to stand and still give you joy. (laughs) I'm going to give you praise. Hallelujah. God, I'm going to worship. Come on, somebody. It may be dark right now, but there's a God who's working on your behalf. You may be in the fire, but there's a fourth man in the fire with you right now. You may be at the Red Sea, but I know the one that can part the sea. Hallelujah. Come on, just give him a shout. Hallelujah. Come on, give him a shout. Hallelujah. Then here's what he says at the end. He says, and Lord... You make my feet like hind's feet or deer's feet so that I can scale the high places. In other words, when impending dooms come into Jerusalem, when all looks like it's hopeless, God, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to give you praise and that's going to allow me to rise above it all. Like the mountain lions and like the... I can get way up in the high places when I get my praise on. I can get up in the high places when I declare my praise to you. Come on, I can get up in the high places when I call on you because I realize you're walking with me through it all. Come on, give the Lord a praise in here. Thank you so much for joining us online. And I hope the message was a real blessing to you. 
You know, eternity is a real thing. You're going to spend eternity somewhere. According to the scriptures, you spend eternity in one of two places. First of all, heaven. Paul said to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Or number two, in hell. Uh, Jesus talked about the rich man who went to hell and was in great torment. And he was begging Abraham to send someone, a messenger, to tell his family. Well, listen. You're hearing the message today, eternity is real, and you're going to spend it in one of two places. So why don't let's decide right now, me and you, that you're going to spend it in heaven. How do you do that? You accept Jesus into your heart. Open up your heart and say, Lord, come in. Cleanse me of all sin. I accept you as my Lord and take the throne of my life as yours. Okay? So let's pray right now. Just pray with me right where you are. Just repeat this, Father in heaven, I, I remove myself from the throne of my heart. And Jesus, I invite you to sit on the throne of my heart. Forgive me of all sin. Wash me in your precious blood. And I accept your sacrifice for me. And I thank you, Lord, for cleansing me, for saving me, and for accepting me. In Jesus' name I pray. Can you say amen right where you're at? Hey, thank you for joining us. And please come back, get in, get in the Word, get in the flow of the Spirit. And uh, we're just blessed to have you with us and look forward to seeing you the next time.